besides neglecting the pie announcement, I missed another one. As some of you know, everybody probably knows, uh, Ray is in Djibouti, and this is a box that has some Christmas cards so that you can fill one out, put it back in the box, and then Melissa's going to send it to him. So remember the Christmas card box. pray and ask the Lord to help us understand his word. Lord, we thank you that we can gather uh, before you and uh, look at your word. We look at this as just a great privilege and we ask that you help us um, to better understand it and then we pray that you change us by it. We thank you so much that we can sing and confess and believe my sin oh the bliss of that glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more help us as we come to your word now to come with freedom that we've been forgiven uh, open our eyes we pray uh, move us we ask to be more like Jesus and we pray these things in his name amen I like breakfast food. Um, French toast, pancakes, uh, omelets, cold cereal, uh, oatmeal with brown sugar, pretty much you name it, I like breakfast food. That might be one of my favorite meals. I really like waffles, and I would like you to imagine, let's personify waffle mix. And think about what happens if you were waffle mix and you were being poured into a waffle maker. It wouldn't be too long before you would have a sense of heat above and below, along with pressure. And you might be thinking to yourself, how do I get out of this? There isn't any way out until the waffle master lets you out. I want to use that as a metaphor to think about the verses that are before us here in Acts chapter 25. We're going to start with verse 13 and go down through verse 27. What's the theme of those verses? Well, I think it's this. Um, Festus is flummoxed. He's like waffle batter in the waffle maker. There's no way out, and he doesn't know what to do. Now, if you just pause for a moment and let that sink in, let's um, go back to last week. Last week, we learned pretty much what we're going to see now repeated in this next section, except for a difference. In last week's section, 25, 1 to 12, Luke narrates what's happening. In these verses, what we get a chance to do is to see life from the perspective of a Gentile governor who's trying to make sense out of why Jews behave the way they behave. 
And so it's, a, it's essentially the same material, but it's from a different angle. And we want to try to answer the question, why is Festus flummoxed? So look with me. We want to just trace Paul's uh, flow of thought here. Verse 13, we are told unexpected guests arrive, King Agrippa and Bernice. They are to see Festus, and all the indicators are this is an amicable arrangement. They come and greet him, we're told, in verse 13. And then in verse 14, you'll see that this is not just a weekend kind of thing. They're there for many days. And it's while they are there for many days, we presume that Festus and Agrippa are talking shop. You know, they're both government leaders. And um, so eventually Festus says to Agrippa, hey, I want to tell you about somebody that was left in prison named Paul. Felix, my predecessor, left him there. And we know from the end of chapter 24 that Felix made that decision to leave Paul in prison because he was doing the Jews a favor. Well, one of the things that's plain now as we go down through these verses is Felix was not doing Festus a favor. So Festus goes on to describe the situation in verses 14 and 15 and 16. And essentially what he says, it, what, essentially what he does is he lets the cat out of the bag. He says, you know, it, things are not as nice as they really appear here in the palace. There are some problems. And the problem is Paul and the Jews. And I went to Jerusalem to try to get my head around what's going on, and lo and behold, I find that the Jewish leaders want me to condemn him. See it there? They want me to condemn him. And then Festus says, I gave them a little primer in Roman law. I said, you can't, we can't do that. I can't condemn a man to death without first um, hearing the charges. So if you want to come down and lodge your charges against him, then we'll be able to make some decision. So Festus has a problem. He's flummoxed because there are these Jews that want to kill Paul. And we know that because we've seen it several times over already. Uh, they want to kill Paul, and he invites them to come. Now, the amazing thing is that these well, let me say it this way. These Jews are wannabe murderers. That's what they are. They had hatched a plot to ambush Paul if Festus had agreed to bring, them, to bring him to Jerusalem. That's what they were going to do. Now they just want Festus to act and condemn him outright. So they come and look at verses 18 and 19. Now what happens? Well, when they get there, uh, they lodge charges against Paul, but Festus can't make sense out of them. What's the, what's the issue? He says that 
the dispute has to do with somebody named Jesus who appears to be unknown to Festus. Somebody named Jesus, and the Jews contend that he's dead, and Paul keeps on insisting that he's alive. That's the issue. And he says, I don't know how to make any judgment on that. What would you do? So he's not only flummoxed about the fact that he has to deal with Paul, but he's also in a quandary. How do I deal with this charge? I mean, what's he supposed to do? Is he supposed to do some research and see if Jesus is alive? If he ever existed, is he alive? If he has, or is he dead? And then how does that come into Roman judicial system? We don't know. It's an important thing. And I want to pause here now because this issue about Jesus is, as far as Festus is concerned, the issue. Do you see it there? Um, he says, uh, I was at a loss to know what to do about this conflict between the Jewish leaders and Paul. Let's just pause and think about conflict. Anybody here experience any conflict? No, thank you, Betsy. Everybody in the Graham household is peaceful as can be. There might be some other people, though, that know something about conflict here. So for their sake, let me just make a couple comments. Uh, when, when we encounter a conflict, it's not just enough to sort of demand our way. We want to ask the question, well, what's under the conflict, right? And so we want to pause here as well and say, what is the conflict here between Paul and the Jews? And we can say a number of things that I think will help us as we move on and try to understand why Luke has even included this little narrative here. What position did the Jewish leaders take when it came to life and godliness? Well, you know, they took this position. Keep the law. Act like a good Jew. You do enough good things, it's kind of like you're in the balances. You do enough good things, and God will smile with you, smile on you. On the other hand, if you're a bad actor, don't have much hope for the future. It was a legalistic system. And it's a very common way of thinking in our world today. There are plenty of people who think, if I do enough good things, come to church, give to the church, be nice to my neighbor, uh, et cetera, et cetera, I'll be okay with God. That's what the Jews, that's how they approached life. And it was very easy then for them then for them to be in control, right? All they have to do is lay out the law to people. This is what you do. I don't like what you're doing, measure up. What was Paul's approach? Well, he tells us in the book of Philippians that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew all about the law. And Paul had come to the place where Jesus had stopped him on the road to Damascus, stopped him dead in his tracks and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul is convinced of his sinfulness in a moment. 
He sees Jesus as the resurrected Lord who has died on the cross to pay for the sins of those who believe in him, and he's converted. And now Paul is on an agenda to honor Jesus because of what Jesus has done for him. So that was the nature of the conflict between the Jewish leaders and Paul. Festus can't understand it, and so he goes on and he says to Agrippa, you know, uh, I said to Paul when I heard this, do you want to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried, presumably by Festus? Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. And uh, at this point, Agrippa's pagan ears perk up. And he says, you know, I would really like to hear from this guy. Festus says, no problem. Tomorrow you will be able to do it. And so that brings us now down to verses 25 and following. What does Festus do? He arranges for a big, I don't know what to call it, celebration, hoopla, something like that. The, the Greek word is the English one from, uh, the Greek word is the one from which we get our English word fantastic. It was a fantasia. It was a big splash. And so now here comes King Agrippa and Bernice. And then we're also told that, all, that a number of the military leaders show up. And then besides those military leaders, prominent men from town. Everybody who was anybody, apparently, was there. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall, at least if you weren't invited to the party? When they all arrive, then Festus makes a big introduction, and he says, I can't understand why the Jews want to put this man to death, but they're all howling together. Kill him. He, ought, he is not fit to live on this earth. And I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, King Agrippa, that as you hear this story, then you and I will be able to commiserate after the fact and we'll be able to come to some conclusion as to my other problem, the other thing that flummoxes me. I don't know what I can possibly write to Caesar to tell him why I'm sending Paul on, a man that I consider to be innocent of any of the charges against him. So I think that we can kind of summarize uh, the dilemma in which Festus finds himself in these ways. He doesn't know what to make of this judgment that the Jews have leveled at Paul, why they want him dead. He doesn't know what to make of this notion about uh, Jesus, who some say is dead and some say Paul keeps saying is alive. He doesn't know what to do with that. And then he doesn't know either what to do with his response that's needed if he's going to write a letter to Caesar. Frankly, when I first read down through these verses, I, th I was not particularly excited about preaching on them. I thought this is sort of a blah passage. Um, and I don't know if Agilon intended me to preach on it because of that. <laughs> I want to blame him. <laughs> but we want to ask this question. 
what does Luke have in mind when he includes this? Why would Luke have this short section? Now, people say, well, because it's the next step in uh, Paul making his journey to Rome. And that's true, it is. Uh, but why go over this material again? I mean, it's, it's almost the same kind of thing down through it. The only difference is that Festus is over here. He's on center stage, you know. Why would Luke possibly include this? That's what I want to talk about. I think one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, I think that one of the reasons that Luke might have included here, these verses here is because he is making a statement to Theophilus and subsequent readers about the Jewish mindset of the day. And the Jewish mindset was this. First of all, we are God's chosen people. You know, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you make you great, you're going to be a blessing, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jews saw themselves as special people because they were the recipients of God's blessing. And the Lord used them to be a blessing. Think about some of the Old Testament examples. How about when... Uh, how about when Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt? Remember how he was a blessing? Or how about when his father, Jacob, and the rest of the family came down and lived in the land of Goshen? Weren't they a blessing to the Egyptians? We certainly know they were. Why? One indicator is this, because when the Lord delivered Moses and the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, there was a mixed multitude, the Bible tells us, that went out of the country. It was not simply Jews, but there were pagan, we might say Gentile, Egyptians who attached themselves to the Jewish nation and headed out with them. So they were a blessing. And then fast forward a little bit to, uh, well, to the time of Daniel. Northern and southern kingdoms are divided, or the, the, the kingdom of Israel is divided, northern and southern. Uh, Daniel and his friends are taken as captives into Babylon. And what does Daniel do? He serves as a good Jew. He blesses the land of Babylon, as do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we could trace a number of other examples. But this is all on the line that the Lord called Israel to be a blessing to the whole world. And so now Jesus is born. He's the Messiah of God's people. He's the one in whom all the promises of God are fulfilled. And what do the Jews say about him? Eh. We don't care about him. And we don't want Gentiles, we certainly don't want Gentiles to be invited into being part of the people of God. And so Paul, we want him condemned because he's trying to get the message of God's blessing for all peoples restricted back again 
Okay? I mean, he's trying to get it expanded when we want to keep it restricted. Us. That's what we're about. So, in effect, what the Jews are doing here as they come now and say, put Paul to death, in effect, what they're doing is they are rejecting God's call on their lives. He says, be a blessing. They're saying, no thanks. What's God's call on your life today? In what ways does he want you to serve him and make him known? To what extent are you being faithful in passing on the blessings of God to those around you? That's one of the reasons that I think Luke includes this. He's making that kind of suggestion to Theophilus and to subsequent readers of the book of Acts. Be a blessing. Don't be like unfaithful Jews. I think there's another reason, and that is what we have here is Festus taking over at center stage and telling us his story, but he can't make sense out of what's going on. He hears about this idea of somebody being raised from the dead, and he just can't fathom it, which is to say lost people are really lost. You rub shoulders with lost people all the time, don't you? They're like and I want to say this uh, intentionally. They're like poor Festus. They can't understand the gospel because nobody has taken time to explain it to them. They're beyond the reach of the gospel at some, for some reason. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about the lostness of lost people. And he says... The God of this world has blinded the eyes of those that don't believe, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and be converted. It's a terrible plight to be lost. In Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 14, Paul asks a series of questions that are right to the point. He says, how shall they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they be sent? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of them that bring the gospel of peace, that announce glad tidings of good things. Lost people are going to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. And Jesus is the answer. And he saves all who come to him. And so I think another reason that Luke includes this section is to point out the lostness, in this case, of a lone Gentile who is representative of lost people the world over. You know, I watch the news and I think about the earthquake in Turkey and Syria not too long ago. And then I think about the suffering that goes with that, and then the earthquake in Morocco, and then the dam that burst in Libya, and now three earthquakes in Afghanistan, and now the edict from Pakistan 
if you're an Afghan, you got to get out of the country. 1.7 million Afghans, we're told, have to leave the country. What will happen to all those people, many of whom are in Muslim-majority countries and have no access to the gospel? Lost people are really lost. And it certainly brings to mind Paul's, uh, Jesus' words in Luke 10. He says, the fields are white to harvest. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his harvest field. It's a fascinating word when Jesus says, pray that the Lord will send them out. You know what that send them out is? You know where that send, send them out verb is used? when Jesus is driving out evil spirits. It's a very potent thing. Suppose the Lord is going to send you out. We would expect that there would be some enthusiasm for it and you would be moving fast because Jesus is blowing wind on you and getting you out of here so that you can get to lost people. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest field. So I hope that, first of all, you will see the difficulty that Jews faced in their rebellion against the Messiah. I hope that's the first thing. I hope the second application here is that you will actually pray, Lord, send out laborers. You could make that part of your nightly prayer. Lord, would you please send out laborers more? Kick them out, Lord. Get them out fast. I think there's one other possible reason that Luke includes this little section for us. We'll have to think about it a little bit, and uh, it takes us back in the book of Acts. Where is Festus when he's flummoxed? Where is he on planet Earth? Anybody know? Okay, it's not hard to figure out. Um, he's in Caesarea. That was kind of his home base. He's in Caesarea. Can you think of anything else in the book of Acts that happened in Caesarea? Well, how about this? How about if we go back to Acts chapter 10? We bump into a very respectable Gentile whose name was Cornelius. He's a military leader, and he's pious, and he's doing what he can to help Jews in Caesarea. And while he's there, the Lord comes to Peter and says, uh, and, and lets a sheet down. Remember, there's a sheet down and all kinds of animals. And the, the Lord says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, oh, no, there's some unclean animals there, Lord. I can't do that. I've never touched anything unclean in my whole life. I can't do that. I'm a good Jew. And that happens three times. And then we're told there's a knock at the door. And there are some of Cornelius's servants who say to whoever answers the door, uh, Cornelius sent us here, we're looking for a man named Peter. 
And lo and behold, Peter was upstairs just having this trance where the Lord... And so Peter goes down, he lets them in, and they say, we want you to come to Caesarea with us. Cornelius wants to see you and hear what you have to say, and Peter does, and he gets to the house, and Cornelius has gathered with his family and his friends, and Cornelius bows down to Peter, and Peter says, oh, don't worship me, get up. I'm a man just like you. And Cornelius says, well, we want to hear whatever you want to say. And so Peter gives him the gospel. And lo and behold, all those people in the house, the Bible says, they believe. The Holy Spirit comes on them. And they're baptized. And presto, changeo, in a moment, there is a baby church that has just formed in Caesarea. And now we're some time later at least two years later, I don't know how much later, but we're at least uh, two years later, and we're back in Caesarea. And now what is the gospel doing in that town? Well, Paul is going to have a hearing in front of not simply Cornelius and his family, but King Agrippa and Bernice and the leading men in the town and the military leaders. The point being that the gospel is on the move. The Lord is really doing some amazing things. And you can trust that he is on the move, not just back there in the first century, in first century Israel, but the Lord is on the move today, drawing people to himself, welcoming them into believing communities, and glorifying Jesus' name in the process. And Luke 10, verse 2, seems to be applicable once again. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest field. And so now, if the call from the book of Acts is, be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, where might you start today? How about if I give you a very easy starting place? What happens when we take the Lord's Supper? Paul says this, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you show forth, you announce the Lord's death until he come. So let's go to the Lord's table together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Bless it to us, we pray. Help us, we ask, to be people who regularly pray for that for which you lived and died, the glory of your name among all nations. And help us, we pray, uh, as we bow before you to see the lostness of lost people, the pathetic situation in which people who reject you find themselves. And help us also to live with great hope because you're our coming king. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.